Hey Icon and Bay City, good to see you. And uh, we are in a new location for this week. Uh, we're in between studios right now, and so we are shooting this from our Icon offices here in Seattle. So super cool background, don't get used to it. Hopefully we'll be in our new studio next week. But this week, we are continuing in our series uh, in Genesis that we call Father Abraham, looking at the life of Abraham and kind of the lessons that we can learn for growing up and becoming the people God has made us to be. So we are in week five, and this week's theme is treat people like humans, right? Treat people like humans. We're looking at Genesis chapter 16. So you can go ahead and turn there. Um, if you have ever seen the series, The Handmaid's Tale, uh, that story is basically a ripoff of what's happening here in Genesis 16. So if this story kind of sounds eerily familiar, uh, it's because uh, Hagar is played by Elizabeth Moss in your brain, and that's the story that's being told. Which means also that if you're familiar with Handmaid's Tale, uh, it's a super Super jacked up story, right? Uh, the the show, the book, the all of that is super jacked up, and it comes from a really jacked up actual story in the Bible um, where we are going to see evidence over and over and over and over and over of people not treating each other like humans. And we'll see kind of the implications of that and, and how uh, those consequences consequences flow out of treating people like they are something less than human. Now, what's also kind of cool about this story is embedded within it uh, is very much Icon's vision, why we exist, and kind of the four things we talk about about why we call ourselves Icon. And so not only will we tell the story and we'll kind of pull out some of these lessons about uh, treating people like humans, but uh, we're also going to kind of revisit a little bit of Icon's vision, and it's kind of a cool opportunity to do that. So. Let's jump in to Genesis chapter 16. It says, now Sarai, remember their names have not been changed yet, so they're still Sarai and Abram, soon to be Abraham and Sarah. But for now, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Right? So super jacked up situation here, right? Uh, Sarai and Abram still can't have kids. Obviously, this is a huge theme of Abraham's story. We're going to talk about that a little bit more here in a moment. They still can't have kids. And now Sarai's got a solution for that. Here's the solution. It was a pretty common Near Eastern uh, kind of custom or tradition that if a family was barren, if a wife was barren, that she could give her maidservant or whatever mistress to her husband and he would impregnate her and that's how they would have children and they would just kind of adopt that child as their heir. So to be clear, this is a very common Near Eastern solution to this problem 
and it is not at all God's will for Abram and Sarai. And I think those two things have to be uh, separated. This was common, but this was not common for God, right? Like the surrounding people would do this all the time. So this is not Sarai kind of coming up with this one crazy solution. This is her seeing all her friends at the well, right? And like they, how they solve this problem. And she comes back and goes, Abram, here's how we solve this problem. I will just give you Hagar and then you can impregnate her. Hagar doesn't appear to have choice in the matter. And it's worth noting that probably Hagar is a servant that was given to Abraham by Pharaoh in one of our previous jacked up stories where uh, Abraham gave Sarai to Pharaoh as kind of a peace offering so that Pharaoh wouldn't mess with Abraham, right? So then when they leave Egypt, if you remember, Pharaoh gives them a bunch of stuff to just basically be like, get out of here and here's stuff so you think well of me. One of those things was probably Hagar. Okay, so we're, we're literally talking about like ancient Near Eastern uh, human trafficking is happening here. And now Sarai, instead of faithfully trusting that God's going to provide an heir through her and Abram, is now basically adopting these customs of the world around her and saying, hey, Abram, here is a solution. Now, this issue has come up so often already in these first four chapters of this story. This is the core conflict of Abram and Sarah's life, right? And they've taken it on. I would argue Sarah, in particular in this story, has taken on her barrenness as an identity, right? That this is so core to who she is. It's such a huge value. And to be clear, right? Like having children in this time was massively important, not only kind of for your reputation and who you are and just like what was valued in the culture, but as they look forward to legacy, to livelihood, like having a family to take care of you, there was no government program. There was no civil society. There was no any other option for how to age well and kind of pass on your name and pass on your money and your land and all those things if you don't have any children. So, I don't mean to diminish the very real importance of Sarai being barren. That, that was a big deal. But she's taken it another step. And rather than going like, hey, this is a big deal. God, will you please help me? And kind of mourning the loss and acknowledging the need. She's going, okay, I'm going to manipulate this situation to kind of have the outcome that I desire and usurp God, right? And so we, we talked last week about Abram's kind of uh, uh, his practical hell and his functional savior, right? And it was a very similar kind of situation. This is what we're seeing in Sarai. Her practical hell is being barren. She has taken on this identity of barrenness and said, okay, it, me living the rest of my life, and she's pretty old at this point, me living the rest of my life without children, unacceptable. And so I'm going to reach for kind of a functional savior to rescue me from this chosen hell. Okay. So that's what's going on. And all of that's wrapped up in identity. And it's, you know, it, it seems because of the kind of craziness of the situation and the way culture changes and how, you know, uh, not, not, not that infertility is not still a thing and not a lot of women still deal with this and wrestle with it we can kind of build a little bit of a distance 
because of the, some of the craziness of the details and the cultural differences here. But the, the fundamental move that Sarah's making here is not at all different from the move we make all the time. She has some event, something in her life that's meaningful and serious and real, but she has taken it on as an identity and kind of added it to the top of her personal kind of value hierarchy to go, this is the most important thing about me, right? And so I need to solve, I need to build my life around either, uh, you know, whether it's a good thing and we're, we're kind of building our life around this good identity or it's a bad thing and we're building solutions to solve that identity, man, we do the same thing. So with Sarah, it's barrenness. Maybe for us, it's uh, our, our job, our vocation, our uh, livelihood, our spouse, our whatever. Like we've taken on things, roles, and we've taken them on as identities, okay? we The roles we play become the people that we are, okay? And we're seeing this in Sarah. So one of the things we, we talk about at Icon and the reason why we call ourselves Icon is because we believe that the truest thing about us, okay, the truest thing about you is that you are made in the image of God. You are an icon in the, in the literal sense of it, in the biblical sense, you are an icon, a reflection of who God is. And that's the most fundamental thing about you. And that can never change, right? Like you never are not an image bearer of God. That is a, a fundamental and unchangeable aspect of who you are. And it's not just an aspect. It is the truest thing about you, okay? So when we substitute other identities or other things that are true about us and make them the most relevant or in some practical sense, the truest thing about us, that's what the Bible calls idolatry. And that's, that's taking on an identity that isn't actually our truest identity. And we see that when Sarah comes to Abram with this and goes, listen, we know, we all know the problem. We all know the stakes here, right? The seriousness of this problem. I've got a solution. Now, this was a moment for Abraham to step in and to, you know, he's just come off this incredible moment with God, with the covenant and the smoking pot through the animals and the whole thing. This is a moment for Abraham to go, hey, babe, love you. I know this is serious. I know this is a big deal. But man, we've got to trust God. God has made a covenant with us. God has promised us that he would give us an heir of our own. It's not going to be Eliezer of Damascus. Thankfully, that loser, right? It's not going to be him. And it's not going to be some other manipulation. It's going to be through God. This is the, the moment, the opportunity that Abram had, and yet he failed. Now, go back to verse 2, okay? It says, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And it says, Abram, listen to the voice of Sarah. Now, most of your Old Testament commentators will, will mention the fact that there is an allusion here to the garden, to Adam and Eve, right? When Eve was tempted by Satan, she then went to Adam and it says, Adam listened. It's the same sentence construction here. So the author here is, is definitely trying to make us think about Adam and Eve and this kind of seminal sin that kicked everything off. He's going, listen, the mistake that Abram and Sarai are making here, the desire to be something else, 
the desire to kind of, kind of win a new identity is the same core desire that Adam and Eve had in the garden where, where the serpent tempted Eve saying, you could be like God. And Adam and Eve respond to that temptation going, yeah, that sounds great. I want to be like God. And that, and that, that set in motion this chain of events that kind of lands us where we are today. Okay. So the author of Hebrews or Genesis here is going, listen, uh, Genesis 16, this issue of, Gen uh, uh, of Abram and Sarah, it's not fundamentally different. It's just a new context. It's just a new situation. And there are going to be a million of those because over and over and over, we are making the same mistake, the same decision over and over that Abram and Sarah did, that Adam and Eve did, which is to choose to trust some outside temptation to tell us who we are and then pursue the implications of that adopted identity rather than to just say, no, I am, I am first and foremost an image bearer of God. That's the most important thing. That's the truest thing about me. And then to be able to live out of that, reflecting our faith in and trust in God and the life that he's set before us. When we take on another identity, that new identity is going to ask us to be and do different things than that identity of image bearer will ask us to be and do. And that's the core of the temptation. Right? Which is why we constantly are reorienting us back to this identity and going, this is why I talk about this all the time. The truest thing about you is this icon identity because if we live out of that, that's a life that leads to true flourishing. Okay? It's why we talk about the importance of spiritual disciplines like reading the Bible and praying and being in community. Right? This is a moment where community really failed Sarai. She's going to her husband going, hey, I think we need to manipulate the situation this way. And instead of him going like, no, babe, no, we got this. We got to trust God. He's like, Hagar, all right, I'm in. Right Now, maybe there's some competing temptations there for Abram. I cannot say. But the situation is such that they're both kind of corporately adopting this new identity. It's leading them down a path of dehumanization which is what we're going to see as the story continues. Verse 4 says, Abram went in to Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now, it's interesting uh, in, in, about this word contempt, right? The, the Hebrew word is kalal, okay? And it's the, the, the literal definition of it is, it's interesting because it's used to talk about uh, like when the floodwaters uh, abated, when the floodwaters went back down, it's that same word kalal. So this literally means just to diminish in the eyes of a person or, or, or to lessen the value of a thing. And so here's what happens. Sarai goes to Hagar, gives Hagar to Abram. Abram impregnates Hagar. A Hagar then turns and looks at Sarai and in her eyes diminishes her value. She literally looks down on her and basically judges her saying, listen, I could get pregnant. And we all know how important that is in the world. We all know how valuable that is. And I could pull it off and I'm just a servant. Who are you? 
I get it, you're my master, but I mean, you can't even get pregnant. It's like pretty fundamental thing that's really important in our society. You can't do it, I can do it. And all of a sudden, the mistress, the servant, begins to look down on her master diminish her value in her sight. And Sarai feels this, like feels this really strongly. She immediately goes to Abram and hilariously kind of blames him. She goes, may it be on you. I blame you that this plan that I made worked basically, right? Which is just how we blame shift and, and avoid responsibility all day long, okay? So what's amazing about this and what I wanna draw our attention to is how quickly Humans are able to judge, to diminish, and to build hierarchies of value, right? In, in a heartbeat, this maidservant sees herself above her boss. She's built a new hierarchy that she can stand on top of. Now, here's what I mean by hierarchies. I'm not anti-hierarchy. Hierarchies are super important. It's hierarchies that tell us uh, not to listen to Nickelback, right? Like, because we know that they suck. Okay, and it is the hierarchy of value that tells us that that's true, that there are some things worth listening to and some things not, that there's some things worth watching and some things not, that there's some people who are good at things and some people who are not. That, so I'm not anti-hierarchy at all, but what we see here is something of kind of the dark side of hierarchies, and that is, that we are constantly trying to build ones that we can stand on top of. Because there are all kinds of hierarchies that I am at the bottom of, okay? The, uh, the, the uh, athletic hierarchy, pretty near the bottom. The looks hierarchy, wish I was nearer the top. The hair hierarchy, totally at the bottom, right? Like all kinds of hierarchies that I wish, you know, success and money and all these things that I wish it was at the top of. And so here's what we do. We look at the world and go, I can't compete in those hierarchies. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to build a new one that I can stand at the top of. Now we've got this servant, Hagar, who is at the bottom of the barrel in society. She is literally a servant who is being traded from person to person. She has no power, no influence, no control over her life. She has just been handed over to a man in order to be impregnated against her will. And so what happens is she gets pregnant and all of a sudden she goes, aha, I have a way to be on top. I have a way to be in control. And she builds this kind of mental value hierarchy upon which she stands at the top and her master who has controlled her up to this point is beneath her and she's loving every minute of it, right? So it's amazing how quickly even those of us who are at the bottom given the opportunity to flip kind of the, the social tables, will do so in order to look down on the people around us. And the reality is, everyone does this. This is not a, a Hagar sin. All of us do this. We build hierarchies in our head that we can stand on top of and judge everybody else by them. 
And we, in our heads, decide that these are the only things that matter. So whether it's financial success or religious piety, political convictions, the right school, the right car, the right house, the right spouse, the right tribe, the right vibe, the right reading list, music choice, wokeness, anti-wokeness, whatever. All we do is go, here's the thing that matters because it's the thing I stand on top of and I can judge everybody else relative to this thing that I've decided is most important. Okay, This is exactly what Hagar's doing and it's exactly what Instagram and Twitter and everything in our social media world incentivizes right now. And so we all try to fall in line and go, okay, what's the new hierarchy? What's the new thing? What's the deal that I'm supposed to know or I'm supposed to do or I'm supposed to say or I'm supposed to virtue signal or I'm supposed to whatever? And how can I get to the top of it by changing my avatar or by saying the right thing or by whatever, by buying the next car or having the right thing? We're always trying to pursue the top of whatever value hierarchy we think is most important. And often when we can't win, we just change the subject and build a new one that we can win at. That's what, that's what Hagar is doing here. She's creating an, a, a, a them. She's creating a new structure that she can be on top of that then everybody else can be below. So this is what we do with all of these categories that we have in our lives. There's us who get it us who are on top of this hierarchy and then there are them who are at the the bottom of the hierarchy or uh, or don't even get it or aren't even fighting the right fight or saying the right things or playing the right game there is always an us and there is always a them someone less someone diminished someone possibly unredeemable or at least someone who we don't want to see redeemed it's a little like Jonah and Nineveh, right? Where there's this, this certain group of people that we don't even want God to save, in a sense. Unless maybe in the process they tell us we were right all along. Okay, so we do this over and over where there is an us, an in-group, and there is a them, an out-group. Now, what, what does this tell us about ourselves? Now, if the first idea is true, that the truest thing about you is that you are an image bearer of God, that's the good news. The bad news is everyone else is an image bearer of God as well. Everyone. So every them isn't actually a them, they're an us. In the category that matters most, the hierarchy that matters most, there is only one category, and that is image bearer of God. That's it. It's icon. There is one category. And we try to break it up and fracture it and, and hierarchize it, it all, but in the end, there's only the one category. We have to remember that no matter what any person says, does, believes, or votes, they are image bearers of God, deeply broken by sin and in need of a savior, just like you. That's the truth that we have to cling to. They aren't some category or group that you've put them in or that they've signed up for. Even if they've taken on an identity willingly, it's a false one. 
And it's our job, especially as Christians, to choose to see through even the false identities other people put on. You get to choose how to value them. You get to choose how to see them. Choose icon. Choose icon. Sarai chose to see Hagar as a thing that she could use to get an heir. Hagar chose to see Sarai as someone incompetent and unable and beneath her because Hagar could accomplish this thing that Sarai could not. They chose to see each other as them and not us. And that's a choice that has massive negative consequences, as we'll see here in a moment. Verse 6. Sarai has come to Abram and said, listen, uh, Hagar is looking down on me now and diminishing me. She's maybe being disrespectful. Who knows, right? Here's Abram's response. Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she, Hagar, fled from her. Now, there's a couple of really powerful statements here in that one verse. First, Abram says, your servant is in your power, right? Like Abram is trying to reestablish the, the kind of right order here in this thing. And in their household, at least in the hierarchy of their household, Sarai is indeed the, the master and, and Hagar is the maidservant, right? That, that's the proper order of things in their household. Now, that's not to say that that's the order of them in their truest sense, but in their household, that's how it's supposed to work. And Abram says, listen, I see how that's gotten flipped where she's diminished you and kind of taken a, a, a place of power over you and tried to do that. And he's reminding Sarah, listen, no, you have power over her. So remind her of that. You may do to her as you will. Okay, this is a, a, a shameful attempt to rightly order the world. This is a sinful and foolish attempt on Abram's part to try to set back to right the order of his household. He is just kind of perpetuating this cycle of dehumanization, going, listen, we used Hagar. Hagar got mad about that, starts to look down on Sarah and be disrespectful to her. Now let's sin on top of sin on top of sin and rightly order this. You do to her as you would. And it tells us that Sarai decides to assert her position through the use of that power. It says she treated her harshly. And I'm, I'm hesitant to use the word abuse just because that's so loaded and it doesn't specify exactly what happened. But whatever it was, it was bad enough that Hagar ran. This pregnant woman who is unable to care for herself, unable to protect herself, completely vulnerable, decided that running away was preferable to whatever it was that Sarah was doing. So she, she was treating her harshly as an attempt to kind of wrestle control and power back from Hagar. Now, this is, this is a, a common and a commonly foolish solution to this problem. 
where we try to outdo power with power and overcome power with more power and more assertion of will and more assertion of strength, that is never the right solution. And we see how this plays out, right? There's this cycle of dehumanization that's happening, right? That Hagar gets enslaved in some sense, made into a servant, sold, given away from Pharaoh to Abram in the first place, made now into a handmaid. Now the handmaid gets pregnant. She looks down on her master with contempt, who then responds with abuse. It's just over and over and over and over. Right? Like the, there are some who would read this story and lionize or valorize Hagar in this story because she is kind of the oppressed person in this deal. And yet what I love about the Bible is it is not attempting for a moment to protect the legacy or reputation of Abraham. Father Abraham, of which all the sons are born, right? Like the Father Abraham looks like a sinful, petty, foolish man throughout this story. Sarai, the mother of Israel, looks like a manipulative, power-hungry, abusive woman who is willing to manipulate the situation and use another woman in order to get her way. And it takes Hagar and shows how she immediately, given even a crumb of power and influence and control, immediately tries to turn the tables to look down on her master. This is a picture of humanity, as raw and real and unvarnished as possible. The Bible is my favorite thing about the Bible. It doesn't attempt to whitewash any of it. It tells it for exactly what it is, right? And, and what it is, is, is what Alexander Solzhenitsyn in Gulag Archipelago, which I, just that sentence is so fun to say. Uh, but I, I use this quote all the time because it's just so powerful in, the, in its kind of leveling power and the way it just reveals and lays bare the truth about all human beings. But he says, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. Okay? So what's he saying? Whatever hierarchy you build, man, that's not the distinction between good and evil. So you build a hierarchy and go, well, those at the top are good and those at the bottom are evil. Wrong. Well, political, wrong. Well, social consciousness and just, wrong. Okay, this party and that party, no. Solzhenitsyn goes, if all you got to do is read a little bit of history, read a little bit of Bible, and you'll see that there is no category, there is no group, there is no thing that can separate good and evil. That line runs through every human heart. We're all on the precipice of grasping and manipulating and using power to, to our own gain and our own ends just given a fraction of an opportunity. None of us are immune to this cycle of escalation. 
And, and especially the higher that the stakes feel. And, and I'm gonna call really clear attention here to our political climate and this upcoming election. All of the rhetoric is simply going, this is the future of our republic. This is the future of everything. This is the future of the Supreme Court. This is the future of the world. This is, this is Armageddon. The stakes get higher, which just is in many ways is enabling people to reach for things, reach for control, reach for power, reach for rhetoric that is completely inappropriate and reflects the same kind of cycle that we're seeing here that goes, because the stakes are so high, because I'm 75 and I'm barren and this is so important, I'm going to reach for using this woman to get me what I want. Because the stakes are high enough, the ends justify the means, this is so important, therefore I can vote for this, or this is so critical to the future of our country that we have to do this, and if you don't, you're wrong and dumb and evil and all of the ways we're talking about each other right now. Let me just tell you, the stakes are never so high that dehumanizing another person or a group of persons and treating them as if they are fundamentally less is ever justified. There's just literally no stakes in which you, you can ever justify that kind of rhetoric or behavior. We have to, each and every one of us, come to grips with the very real darkness in our own hearts. To acknowledge, like, I'm not better than the people in this story. I'm not better than the people across the aisle or across the issue. It's the same. We have this same fundamental brokenness within us. And coming to grips with that in a real way is perhaps the most difficult decision and process that we could ever embark upon, and yet also the most empowering and life-giving decision we could ever make. We have to acknowledge this in us, and if we cannot, we will forever make the mistakes of Hagar and Sarai. We will continue to dehumanize and build hierarchies that allow us to dehumanize more and more. This is why the first move towards God in the Bible is always repentance. It's always one of acknowledging our part, of acknowledging our brokenness, acknowledging our sin, acknowledging our culpability. That is always the first step. Acknowledging the darkness within us, that we are fundamentally and terminally flawed that we have no moral high ground, but we desperately need someone who does to sort it out. So we are, and you are, an image bearer of God, and that's the truest thing about you, and it's the truest thing about them, and yet, what the Bible continually tells us is even though that's always true and it can never change, you have never spent a day fully imaging God, never once. We are constantly dehumanizing. We are constantly making hierarchies. We are constantly giving in to the sin and darkness in our own hearts over and over and over, perpetuating this behavior through the centuries. Doesn't change anything about who you are, but it does force us to acknowledge 
and own the decisions that we make, that we need something outside of us to solve this problem. And that's what we see in this last section, verse seven. Sarai, uh, or Hagar flees and says, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. Now, uh, what's interesting here is that Old Testament scholar by the name of Tremper Longman and, and others, but he in particular, makes a really compelling argument that the angel of the Lord in this verse is God himself kind of presenting as an angel or a messenger, which is kind of a literal translation of angel, right? That God himself is present with Hagar in this moment. And he does an interesting thing that is uh, pretty common for God, right? He asks her a question that he knows the answer to. And this is kind of God's thing, right? In the garden, Adam and Eve sin, they're hiding. God comes and goes, where are you? And then later, what did you do, right? God knows the answer. So the question is, why is he asking Hagar this question? Well, um, when we ask a question of a person, right? Rather than just assuming we understand, when we ask a question to the person, it allows them to frame their experience in their own words, to describe their situation or their problem from their perspective, rather than us dictating to them what their situation is, as if we had the objective viewpoint that they don't have. And even God does this, which is so humanizing for Hagar. In fact, it might be the first truly humanizing moment in her life in a really, really long time. And it comes at the hand of God, and this is God's entrance into the story. Up to this point, this has been Abram, Sarai, Hagar, this love triangle of dehumanization. And now God first comes in and says, hey, Hagar, what's going on with you? What are you running from? What are you running towards? Right? That God's interest is in Hagar herself. Now, he has kind of a hard word for her. Verse 9 says, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her, which we might go, what are, why would you ask this woman who has been enslaved and a servant and a handmaiden, all these things now to return to the very mistress whom has mistreated her? Like, how is that fair, God? Now, we'll, we'll see how this plays out here in a moment, but one of the things we have to always understand about God is God is always working redemptively that the rightly ordered universe is always God's goal. It's always God's end, and he's always working towards that end. And consistently throughout the scriptures, the only healthy, good way to go forward is to first go back. In fact, this is why the first move towards God in the gospel is repentance. It's for us to take a step backwards and be honest about who we are and what we've done. To go back to the source of the problem, to acknowledge that the problem here, the disconnect between us and God, the disconnect between us and the world, it's a me problem. It's not a you problem. It's not a them problem. It's not an out there problem. It's an in here problem. That that's the first step of the gospel, to own our own sin, right? And that that would be the way forward 
to go back. So the ideal here is that Hagar and Sarai are reconciled. They're redeemed, right? Like in the kind of social structure of their household, the way it ought to work is that Sarai, who is the mistress of the home, should love and treat Hagar with respect and kindness and that Hagar, as the servant, would treat Sarai with respect and submission. That in the, in the ecosystem of their household, that's how that should work. Just like you at work, you, your boss ought to treat you with respect and kindness and sympathy. And you should treat your boss with respect and submission. That's how the social dynamics in your workplace ought to be. And so the calling, even if you have a really bad, angry boss, the calling is always going to be, hey, you, you do your part to seek reconciliation so that this relationship can be what it was meant to be. The move is always back before it goes forward. And we see this with God here in verse 9 and 10. So it says, the angel of the Lord also said to her, so first said, return, but it also said, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. See, in Christ or in God, we always have a future. There's always grace. There's nothing that you've done that's irredeemable. There's nothing that you've seen, nothing you've experienced that cannot be solved, cannot be healed, cannot be put back together by God. There is always a future, but that that future always begins by us going backwards. It always begins with repentance and reconciliation. We have to go back in order to go forward. Uh, C.S. Lewis has this great illustration of this in his book, The Great Divorce, right? He's talking about math in it, and he says this. He says, a sum, addition, right? He's British. A sum can be put right, but only by going back till you find the error and working it afresh from that point, never by simply going on. Right? And he's making a moral point here with this math illustration. But he goes, listen, when you realize in a, as you're doing long division or whatever that you've made a mistake somewhere, it's not working right, you can't just press on because you're down a path that will never lead towards the right answer. Because what you have to do is you have to go back to where your math went wrong and then set afresh down that new path towards a potential right outcome. And the same is true morally. We cannot simply have a bad situation, have a bad relationship and press on and ignore it, even though that might be what we want to do and just move on and run away from it. That will never lead towards a good end. That we have to go back to figure out where the math went wrong, where, where our values got screwed up, where we treated someone poorly, begin to reconcile from that point so that that relationship and your life can get on the right trajectory. So there is someone or some groups of someone in your life that you have made into a them, as we talked about in the second point, that you treat as something less than you, something diminished, something less important than you. And you, like Hagar, need to go back to repent, go back to where the math went wrong and begin to make it right. Now, this might mean figuring out where your own mind and heart went wrong. 
What are you believing is so ultimate, so much that you are able to treat these people as if they are less than you? What shifted in your own mind and heart? What category became the most important category? So much so that you're able to say, I can order my world and value people based on this one category. That's a heart issue. But it also might mean going back to a moment in time when you treated someone who thought, acted, or believed differently than you do as something less than an icon, and you need to repent of them. Go back to that act, reconcile, so you can go forward again in a rightly ordered relationship. So there's always a future. There's always a redeemed and reconciled future, but that future can only be experienced if we first go back. Let's finish in verse 11. It says, The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, which, I mean, come on, how do you get better than that description, right? His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. That's the truth. God looks after you. He loves you. He has a plan for you. He's got you. You are an image bearer of God. You are an icon. Nothing can change that. Which means there's no need to strive. There's no need to grasp. There's no need to manipulate. There's no need to build hierarchies that you can stand on top of. Because there is no them, there is only us. There are only icons made in the image of God. That's it. But the truth is, you will never treat people out there like icons. You will never treat them like humans until you first see yourself most fully and most truly as an icon. Until that becomes the core of your identity. And you realize like, no, what's true about me is actually something that can never change my behavior, my ideas, my thoughts, my nothing ever changes. What's this this true thing about me? And you begin to live out of that. That's your only hope to be able to consistently treat other people as if they too are image bearers of God, to treat them like humans. So we have to remember, I am an image bearer of God and I am hopelessly broken by sin and and hopelessly irredeemable without him. And so is everyone else. But that's my fundamental place. That's where I begin the day, every single day. And that God, is my only hope. And what he says about me is the only thing that is ultimately true. And that every day we have to go back to where the math went wrong so that we can go forward on the path of life that God has set out for us. Let's pray. Father, we are so deeply thankful for the imprint that you have put on each and every one of us. The stamp of your identity, the stamp of your image upon us. That that is the truest thing about us and it can never change. And if that's true, 
then we don't need to build any new hierarchy. We don't need to, to orient our life around some new value that we can win at. We've already won by your grace to be called your children, to be stamped with your image is a great, great honor. May we cling to that honor and live out of that identity each and every day so that we don't have to grasp for any others. Which just leads us down this path of, of dehumanization and manipulation and striving that is endless and destructive. So orient our hearts to that truth each and every day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment. Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.